0: It's time for the WGN Radio Theater Program 468 in the series. It's May 9th, 2020. I'm your host, Carl Amari. In front of me, six feet away is lisa wolf my co-host what's up lisa hi
1: carl how are you so glad to be here even six or so feet away <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll be here till 3 a.m and we have eight count them that's three more than five
2: eight <laughs> carl, classic, math. i tell you
0: sophisticated <laughs> you know i i, I tell you i had a crush on my math teacher that's well, why i'm so good at math oh
1: that must have done it i'm yeah. sure that's the reason
0: <laughs> eight classic radio shows are you ready for this lineup folks have gun will travel The Jack Benny Program, Danger Dr. Danfield, Murder at Midnight, Fibber McGee and Molly, Whitehall 1212, The Bickersons, and The Unexpected. I
1: think we're going to be here for the next few days, but will you stay with us,
0: (laughs) please? I promise we'll get this in before 3 a.m., and it all begins after these words. Hour one of the WGN radio theater. And in this hour, have gun will travel plus part one of Jack Benny. But before we begin, want to remind all of our listeners. About 100radioshows.com. That's our new website, the number 100, then radioshows.com. If you go there and put your email address, you will be sent five classic radio shows absolutely free. It's our way of thanking you for listening to our show. The five classic radio shows that you will receive are...
1: You will get Fibber McGee and Molly, Jack Benny, Gunsmoke, Suspense, and Richard Diamond, Private Detective. All absolutely free. For just being our friend and our listener. We really do appreciate our listeners. That's
0: right. And they're all digitally remastered. They come to you instantly. Five free shows waiting for you at 100radioshows.com. And there are also hundreds of additional radio shows that you can purchase. But when you do purchase those shows, use the promo code at checkout, which is RADIO, and save 70% off your order. Great way to collect Tons and tons of classic radio shows at a super great price. Use the promo code RADIO. All right, time now for Have Gun, Will Travel. Great Western series. It began, Lisa, as a TV show in 1957. Then CBS said, well, it's doing great on TV. Why don't we create a radio version? So about a year later, they did. Richard Boone played Paladin on TV. John Daner played Paladin on radio. And uh, Paladin was a former Union cavalry officer, a graduate ...of U.S. Military Academy at West Point. He was a decorated Civil War veteran. He was well-schooled and highly cultured. He became rich as a hired gun at very high prices. He lived at the Swank Hotel Carlton in San Francisco. And he dressed in formal attire. He ate gourmet food. He frequented the opera. And he was quite the ladies' man. But when he was on a case... He dressed all in black, and he was a tough ombre. I'll tell you that right now, at least you don't want to mess with Paladin. No, I don't. Okay. We have a uh, broadcast for you now from September 25th, 1960. It's called Bringing Up Ollie. Here's John Daner, uninterrupted, have gun, will travel. (laughs)
3: It's always good to visit old friends. But I didn't know this meeting would lead to such a calamity.
4: Have gun will travel. Starring Mr. John Daner as Paladin. San Francisco. 1875, the Carlton Hotel, headquarters of a man called Paladin. Hey,
5: boy. Oh,
6: hey, boy. Oh, please, Missy Wong, must not stop. Mr. Paladin waiting for a new suitcase.
5: Oh, my, very nice. Oh, such beautiful oh, leather.
6: M- must oh. hurry, Missy Wong. Mr. Paladin will be very angry. Excuse, please.
5: So much time to buy suitcase. you gone three hours now.
6: Oh, a big mess. Omnibus breakdown, wheel fall off, frightened horses. Holy moly, big mess. Hey boy, has to walk all the way from Montgomery Street.
5: Oh, poor hey boy. But you must not worry for Miss Apollo then. He will not be angry.
6: Oh, Missy Wong, you're wrong. Oh, no. Yes, sir. He needs suitcase for trip to Colorado and very little time left to pack before he catch his
5: stage.
6: But, hey, boy, Mr. Paladin... Please, he... Missy Wong, you slow me down. No time to talk. Okay. Okay. Mr. Paladin! Mr. Paladin! he's hey, boy! Oh, <laughs> Oh, holy moly. Hey, boy. Yes? Missy Wong
5: tries to tell you.
6: Oh, Miss Paladin already leaves?
5: Lisa, can't wait.
6: He very angry
5: with hey boy? No. He's the like old suitcase. He use
7: it. It's okay.
6: Oh, me.
4: Constipation can be a problem for anyone, even doctors. And when constipation occurs, it's interesting to see just what doctors consider important about a laxative they might use or recommend. Well, a majority of the doctors we heard from had this to say. A laxative should be effective,
8: gentle, close to natural acting, a medicine that can be used with complete confidence.
4: Now, X-lax has been popular with many doctors and millions of people over the years because chocolate X-lax is effective overnight. It helps you toward your normal regularity. X-lax is so gentle, so close to natural acting, there's no upset. That's why many doctors and millions of people use X-lax with complete confidence. X-lax, the laxative that helps you toward your normal regularity, gently, overnight.
3: Traveling from San Francisco to Colorado Territory, a passenger has his choice of being transported in a cloud of stagecoach dust or in a funnel of railroad cinders. On my trip to Pueblo, I had more than a fair share of both. But once I arrived, the uncomfortable miles were easy to forget. The job was simple, the money was good... And after leaving a satisfied client, I leisurely straddled a rented horse and started the second phase of my Colorado journey. This was the part I had really looked forward to. A ride north, alongside the Arkansas River, all the way to Oro City for a visit with my old friends, Ollie and Cora Beardsley. Ooh, what? Well, I'll... Cora! Cora Beardsley, wait! Wait up! Paladin? Cora! Is
5: that you, Paladin? <laughs>
3: it sure is. For heaven's sake, Cora. of
5: all people, oh, I can't hardly believe it. It's been a eyes. long
3: time, Oh, it sure Cora, has, You haven't hope. changed a bit. In fact, like, I think oh. you look even younger than you did four years and ago.
5: And you ain't changed either. What brings you to Aura City?
3: You and Ollie. Oh. I had business in Pueblo, so I decided to take some time off and come up to see how you've been getting along. Oh, I was just going to check in that hotel when I saw I you.
5: I just can't get over it.
3: <laughs> so what? good to see you. Oh, here now, Cora. Is no cause for you to shed tears.
5: Forgive me, but it's like having your prayers answered. All the years we've known you, somehow you always show up when we need you most.
3: Is something wrong?
5: Yes, there is. What? Well, it's Ollie. Ollie. He's a different man since you was here last. I don't know what got into him, but he's managed to get himself into a whole pack of trouble. I'm
3: sorry to hear that, Cora. Listen, I know you don't want to stand out here on the boardwalk and tell me about it. Why don't I drive you out to the ranch and we can talk on the way?
5: Well, to tell you the truth... I think it might be better if Ollie tells you himself. He's right down the street. I was just on my way. Why don't you come with me? Or maybe you'd best check in the hotel first.
3: No, I can do that later. Come on.
5: <sighs> Lots of things are different since you was here, Paladin. We don't live on the ranch anymore.
3: Oh? Did you sell?
5: Yes, it was too much work for Ollie, and it wasn't paying for itself. We bought a little house on the edge of town. I've been taking in sewing, and it pays right well.
3: You always were one to keep busy. How does Ollie take to living in town?
5: Well, the way I figure it, that's what started all his troubles. This is where we stop.
3: Uh, here? The sheriff's office?
5: That's right.
3: You mean. You mean Ollie is in jail?
5: That's right. It used to shame me to go through this door, but. Well, I think I'm getting used to it now.
3: How long has he been here?
5: Sixteen days today. Coma. Oh, he'll be glad to see you. Maybe you can talk some sense into him. Let's go in.
9: Oh, afternoon, Cora. Good
5: afternoon, Jim. I want you to meet a friend of ours, Mr. Paladin. This is Sheriff Moody.
9: to so, you.
5: He's come all the way from San Francisco to pay us a visit.
9: Well, I knew I'd never seen you around before. No, the last time I was in Oro City, you had a different sheriff.
5: Jim's been here two years now. Oh,
9: here, I'll uh, get the keys.
5: Ollie, you're going to be surprised, Paladin.
3: Well, I'm anxious to find out what he's been up to.
9: Hey, you got
10: special company today, Ollie.
9: Well, hey, hello, Ollie, you all.
10: Rascal. Hey, when would you get into town? Just now. Come on, let him in, Jim. I want to shake his hand good. All right, give me a chance.
5: Ollie, I think you and Paladin ought to visit alone. I'm going back to the house, if you don't mind.
10: Sure, Cora, that's fine. Come on, get me here, Paladin. Let me get a close look
3: at you. Well, Ollie, you're the last person I ever expected to see in jail. <laughs>
5: Ain't it something, though? Ollie? <laughs> yes, Cora? You want me to bring you a hot supper tonight?
10: Oh, heavens, no. Don't be going to all that bother. The food here is good enough for any man. All
5: right. Uh, Paladin, why don't you come by the house and have supper with me?
10: I'd be happy to, Cora. Thank you.
5: I'll be looking for you. Well, goodbye.
9: Bye. I'll uh, see you to the door, Cora. Uh, just yell when you're ready to leave, Mr. Paladin. All right, Sheriff, I will.
10: Goodbye, Ollie. Come on, sit down, Paladin. See what a good, comfortable bunk they got in this jail. All right. Uh...
3: You're the host, and an unusually happy one under the circumstances.
10: What, what's this all about, Ollie? Is this some kind of joke? Oh, no, it ain't no joke at all, no. I had a big trial and everything. Judge found me guilty and sentenced me to 20 days in jail. Guilty of what? Well, he said to me, Miss, uh, Miss, I don't know, something like that. Anyway, what he meant was that I shouldn't have raced my old spring wagon down the middle of the street and rammed it into the side of the stagecoach. But that last part was accident. I sure didn't intend to do that.
3: (laughs) What in the world
10: were you doing racing your wagon down the middle of the street? Well, I don't remember exactly why I decided to do it, but most people have been saying I had a little too much to drink. What do you say? I guess they're pretty close to right. What's happened to you, Ollie, getting drunk and racing wagons? Well, Paladin, I know it ain't exactly what you call upstanding, but I didn't mean no harm. I didn't know I was going to hit the stagecoats. Besides, nobody got hurt.
3: I think your pride must have been a little hurt being locked up in
10: jail like this. Oh, no, I don't mind it a bit. I figured I had it coming. The judge said so anyway. I sort of like it here. You like it? Ollie, you're not making any sense at all. Well, it's hard for you to understand, Paladin. You're still young. But when you get to be my age, you do a lot of remembering. About all I can remember is a mountain of hard work and one big black patch of sorrow when we lost our boy. Well, sir, after a while, you get stuffed up with some memories. So you go out and you do things you never thought you would do. Make new memories, and this time, happy ones. So I'm happy to be in jail. And do you know what? No, what? You see that fellow over there in the other cell sleeping? Yeah,
3: I noticed him when I came in.
10: Well, we're just lucky he's taking a nap or we wouldn't be able to hear ourselves talk. He complains every minute he's awake, but that ain't the point. Can you guess who he is? No. That's Rad Tolan. You mean one of the Tollan brothers? You guessed it. They're about the meanest two brothers alive. Out-and-out killers. I know. There's a $5,000 reward over their heads. Yeah, but nobody gets the reward unless you catch the both of them. The sheriff caught Rad down at the saloon just yesterday. Huh? No, I'll tell you, that sheriff, Jim, he's a good lawman. He can fox anybody. You should hear Rad cussing him out. Says his brother's going to come and get him out of here, and the first thing they're going to do is blow Jim's head off. Just the boys who would do it if they had the chance. Take hey, just imagine me, Ollie Beardsley, locked up in the cell next to one of the Toland brothers. Ain't that something? Well, I, I, I don't know, Ollie. Oh, my, don't you see, Paladin? i never been in the cell before in my whole life. I'll be out in four days, and then I'll have something new to remember. All right, uh, what then? When does this fling end, Ollie? Well, I don't know. You don't think much about the future when you're my age. Do you think much about Cora? Oh, sure, but Cora can take care of herself good enough. We've been married thirty-five years, and she don't lean on me for nothing, nothing at all. She might look weak and puny, but she's healthy as an ox. I never worry about Cora, and I'm pretty sure she never worries about me. I wonder.
5: I baked that pie just for you, Paladin, and you hardly put a dent in it.
3: Oh, it's delicious, Cora, but it'd be a waste to force it down. I'm afraid i just overindulged before I got to the pie. It'll
5: just go to waste anyway.
3: We can take some down to Ollie. He'll enjoy it.
5: I don't know whether he would or not. He's been so unpredictable these past months, I never know what to expect. Nothing I do seems to please him. Oh,
3: Well, he'll get over it. It's just a phase. Something he has to get out of his system.
5: That could be. Uh, I'll see. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was looking for Mrs. Beardsley. Is she here?
3: Yes, she is. Come in.
5: Miss Beardsley. Hey, Janet Brogan, what's the matter, child? My papa sent me over here, and he said not to get you upset and to be careful how I tell you what happened. Oh, it's just awful, Miss Beardsley. Just awful. Tell me what? Well,. I just don't know which to tell you first. Well,
3: now, take it easy, Janet, and try to start from the beginning.
5: Who's he? Well,
3: uh, never mind. Please, tell us what happened.
5: Well, sir, Sheriff Jim's been shot, and oh. they don't expect him to live. Oh, no. Who shot him? Them Tolan brothers. Oh. The one that was loose, the one that wasn't in jail, my papa said, came right in the front door of the sheriff's office and shot Sheriff Jim and took the keys and let his brother loose, and they run out of town and got away. Oh. Did anybody trail them? Oh, well, my papa's getting a posse together right now. Then they're going to catch him. But that ain't the worst part, Miss Beardsley. Your husband went with them, him, him Brothers. What? what? Yes, ma'am. They broke Mr. Beardsley loose too, and my papa says they forced him to go with them. <coughs>
4: A wholesome foursome of listening treats, CBS Radio's Happy Habit Gang, are yours for the fun of it every Monday through Friday. They are, of course, Arthur Godfrey, Art Linkletter's house party, Gary Moore, and the sparkling combination of Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney. You can't beat them, so why not join them? Every and any Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, right here on this station of CBS Radio. Arthur, Art, Gary, Bing, and Rosie, every weekday yet. And every Sunday, you have a fine opportunity to explore with experts the background of the week's important news. CBS newsman Edward R. Murrow calls into electronic conference CBS newsmen around the globe, the men who've seen the important news break firsthand. Together, in an effective worldwide conference call, Mr. Murrow and his fellow CBS newsmen weigh the facts and their perspectives in history. Background is the name of this important program. It's on this station, Sundays. (laughs)
3: Laura Beardsley accepted the news of Ollie's predicament with expected anguish, excused herself, and retired to her room. Knowing that I could be of more help elsewhere, I left the house and joined Janet Brogan's Papa's posse. We tried to trail the Tolan brothers and Ollie, but the darkness made it impossible. Before dawn, we gave up and made our way back to Oro City. Later that day, I learned that Sheriff Jim Moody was not going to die after all. He was, in fact, back at work in his office.
9: Hello, Mr. Paladin. Come in. Sheriff, how do you feel? Well, my uh, head's a little cloudy yet, but otherwise all right, I guess. Oh, sit down. Thank you. Uh, no serious damage, then, huh? Well, the bullet grazed my forehead, but that didn't do as much harm as the fall I took. Uh, the doctor said it was just a slight concussion. Uh, said it'd clear up in a couple of days. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, did uh, Mr. Brogan fill you in on our wasted efforts last night? Yeah, he did. It's terrible to think what they might do to old Ollie. Uh, why do you think they'd go to the trouble of taking him with them? Probably to use him for cover if they got cornered. Uh, of course. That's why I was glad we didn't
3: track him down last night. I think they'll turn him loose in a few days. He'll be all right. I hope you're right,
9: for Cora's sake. How's she holding up? Pretty well. I was by there a while ago. Then you think we ought to wait a few days to see if Ollie comes back before we go after him? Yeah. Hey, Helen. Huh? What? Well, Look outside, Those riders pulling up. What? That's Ollie. Yeah, and the Tolan brothers. Here, you better grab one of these rifles. I may need your help.
3: Yeah, looks like they're coming in. You stand back at the door. I'll cover this side. Okay.
10: All right, get on in. This the end of the road. Ollie. Hello, Paladin. Ollie, are you all right? Well, if I wasn't, I wouldn't be holding this gun on their backs, would I? All right, keep moving. You know where the sails are. Go on, go on.
3: Paladin. I can't believe it. Neither can I, but let's give my a hand just in case we're wrong.
10: But, Paladin, I still think we could have stopped by the saloon first. I deserve one little drink at least. You will get your drink after you talk to Cora. Oh, well, she wouldn't care. Now, Ollie... Hey, what you knocking for? This is my house. Go on in. Hey, Corey! Corey! What?
5: That you are? My ears, and here you are, all in one piece. Oh, Ollie. Oh, now,
10: now, Corey, stop it. Oh. You don't have to carry on like this in front of Mr. Paladin. Well,
5: what happened to you last night? I've been worried sick.
10: Now, you ought to know better than to worry about me after 35 years. I'm man enough to take care of myself.
5: Ollie, you was with them Tolin brothers, them them killers.
10: Oh, they're just human people like you and me.
5: Ain't you going to tell me what
10: happened? Well, I, uh, uh, Paladin, why don't you tell her for me? I I think you ought to, Ollie. I'd um, I'd like to hear it again myself. All right, now, Corey, you got to dry them tears off your face.
5: Oh, sure, Ollie. Well, why don't you sit down on the sofa, Pellet, and you can sit in this chair. It's most comfortable. Thank
10: you, Cora. <coughs> Corey, you got any brandy in the house? Well,
5: no, but I'll fix you some coffee. Would you like that?
10: <coughs> no, no, no. Don't bother. Go ahead, Ollie. Tell Cora what happened. Well, first off, you ought to know that I won't be going back to jail. Jim suspended my sentence because I brought in them there tolling brothers single-handed. You did? Why, how'd you ever do that? It wasn't easy. They took me to an old line cabin about ten miles out last night. We was going to stay there until morning and then go on to somewhere else. But I fooled him. Whilst they were asleep, I got untied, took the guns away from them, tied their hands behind their back, and made them ride back here to jail. Oh, good heavens.
5: Ollie, I can hardly believe you did all that.
10: I don't know why you can't believe it. The
3: men are locked up, Cora. I was right there when he brought them in, and just like you said, their hands were tied behind them, and he had them covered with one of their own six guns. But
5: the Tolin brothers, my Ollie, against those killers.
3: And there's
10: a $5,000 reward for those men.
5: 5000 You mean Ollie will get $5,000? That's
10: right. Oh. Now, I, I, I don't know, Hallett, and I might not get the full amount. Uh, there's, uh... No reason why you shouldn't, is there? Well, I i reckon not.
5: Ollie Beardsley, I am so proud of you. Why, you're going to be like a hero in this town. Now,
10: don't get so all-fired excited. Oh,
5: I think I've got a right to.
10: Well, I, I'm not so sure. What's the matter, Ollie? Don't you
3: think you deserve to be a hero?
5: Ollie, there's something wrong, ain't there? There's something more you ain't told us.
10: Well, yes, there is. No, you always could see right through me, Corey. What is it, Ollie? I just knew it. I couldn't go on with it. But the trouble is, if I don't go through with it, I'll be in a real mess. Go through with what? And the truth of the matter is, them Tolan brothers forced me to bring them back to jail. They made up that story for me to tell everybody. Why did they want to go to jail? Well, they're pretty slick schemers and mean, too. Just as mean as everybody thinks they are. They got this all planned out, and if I don't go through with it, they're going to kill me and Cory, too, and they'll do it. Well,
5: they won't do no killing locked up in
10: jail. No, oh, they'll get out. They got all kinds of schemes to get out if I don't do what they told me to do. What was that? Well, sir, I am supposed to wait until I collect the 5000 reward money, and then I got to find some way to get them out of jail and then turn the money over to them. They promised to give me $500 of it if I do it, and if I don't, then Cory and me will be dead.
5: Oh, Ollie. Well, you sure got yourself into a pack of trouble this time.
10: But I didn't do it. I was forced into it. Can't you see that? If you
5: hadn't got drunk and raced that wagon down the street in the first place, you wouldn't be in this mess. No,
3: no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This can't be as bad as it sounds. After all, the Tolans are locked up. All we have to do is to see that they stay there until they're hanged. And well, I'd feel much might better if they were hanged. Come on, Ollie, let's go down and tell the sheriff. We'll get some townsmen to stand guard duty on those men 24 hours a day. And, uh... If it'll make you feel any better, I'll stay in Oro City until the Tolan brothers are buried. I sure would be grateful if you did, Paladin.
5: They ought to hang them today, if they can.
3: Well, they'll have to have a trial first, Cora, but I'm sure we all know what the verdict will be. Uh, I'll stay, but only on one condition. What's that? That you will promise never to get drunk again and race that wagon down the street.
10: Oh, I promise that, never again.
3: And I believe you, Ollie. I think you've accumulated enough new memories now to last quite a few years.
10: You're sure right about that. Come on, we better go. Paladin. Yes?
5: I just wanted you to know. I'm awfully glad you decided to pay us a visit when you did.
3: I am too, Cora. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. (laughs)
5: Look smart, keep up to date with Pepsi. Drink light, refreshing Pepsi. Stay young and fair and debonair. Be sociable, have a
11: Pepsi.
4: When you're out for fun, there's nothing like carton along an extra carton or two of light, refreshing Pepsi-Cola. You can enjoy all you want of Pepsi's lively taste and sparkle, because Pepsi refreshes without filling. So travel light with light, refreshing Pepsi wherever you go, and whatever you do, buy an extra carton. Be
5: sociable, look smart, keep up to date with Pepsi, drink light, refreshing Have
4: a Pepsi. Have Gun, Will Travel. Created by Herb Meadow and Sam Rolfe, is produced and directed in Hollywood by Frank Paris, and stars John Daner as Paladin, with Ben Wright as Hayboy. Tonight's story was specially written for Have Gun, Will Travel by Mr. Paris. Featured in the cast were Virginia Gregg, Ann Whitfield, Russell Arms, and Ralph Moody. This is Hugh Douglas inviting you to join us again next week when CBS Radio presents Have Gun, Will Travel.
0: Have Gun, will travel from September twenty fifth, nineteen sixty. The show called "Bringing Up Ollie," starring John Daner, with participating sponsors, is heard on CBS. Hope you enjoyed that. All right, now we're going to listen to the first half of the Jack Benny program. Then we'll break for news. We'll come back after news play the concluding half of Jack Benny, and then we'll tune into Danger, Dr. Danfield. But right now, Jack Benny and all his gang, you know, Jack Benny started on radio back in 1932. His radio show lasted until 1955. And, you know, he was born in Chicago and grew up right here in Waukegan, Illinois. He played vaudeville and became very, very popular. And, of course, his radio show was... Maybe the high watermark in all of comedy of the golden age of radio. He then went on to TV, made movies, all kinds of success. He was probably the most successful comedian of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And we have a broadcast for you now from December 14th, 1947. Jack sprained his ankle. Here's the first half of the Jack Benny program.
4: The Jack Benny program. <laughs>
12: The program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, as you all know, last week, Jack Benny sprained his ankle while playing football with some of the neighborhood kids. He's been confined to his bed all week, and his friends are quite concerned about it. Let's drop in on two of them.
13: Say, Emily. What is it, Martha? Did you hear about Jack Benny spraining his ankle? Yes, I read about it in the paper. Oh, the poor man. I hope it doesn't interfere with his dancing. He <laughs> turkey trots divinely. <laughs> Why, Martha, did you ever dance with Mr. Benny? No, but I saw him one night last month when I was cigarette girl at the Palladium. (laughs) (laughs) He he called me over and bought a package of Lucky Strikes from me. Really? And while I was giving him his change, his hand touched mine. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Then what happened? Oh, I don't know. When I came to, I was in the ladies'
11: powder room. <laughs>
13: oh, Martha, you're just making a fool of yourself over Jack Benny. I am not. You are, too. You even went to see the horn blows at midnight. <laughs> well, that was the only place I could be alone with him. <laughs>
11: Emily.
13: Emily. Have you ever noticed his eyes in a technicolor picture? His eyes? Yes. They look like the reflection of the evening sky in two limpid woodland pools. (laughs) Martha, stop talking about him like that. You'll blow the fuse on your hearing aid. (laughs) Well, I don't care. You know, I sent him flowers this morning. Gee, I wonder if he received them.
12: How about another pillow, boss? No, I've got enough pillows But gee, I wish the bed was a little softer Shall I empty the mattress? No (laughs) You better do that tomorrow morning The banks are closed today
14: Yes, sir Oh, where would you like me to put these flowers?
12: Over there on the table You know, I can't figure out who sent them Let me see that card again, Rochester Here you are to Jack Benny from someone who admires you tremendously. I wonder
14: who... Well, you know, boss, Lana Turner ain't going with Tyrone
11: Power anymore.
12: (laughs) Say, maybe... No, no, he wouldn't send them to me.
11: (laughs) Uh,
12: Rochester, hand me that mirror. I want to see if I need a shave.
14: Here you
12: are. Let's see. No, I guess I can get by without shaving. Gee.
14: Mr. Benny, why do you keep staring in the mirror? Rochester...
12: Do my eyes look like the reflection of the evening sky in two limpid woodland pools?
14: Uh-huh. It's a shame you have to close them at night.
12: Yeah, me in the morning glories.
14: By the way, boss, do you want me to fill out that form for your accident insurance?
12: I don't know. Do you think they'd pay off on a sprained ankle?
14: Why not? You collect it for
12: that ingrown toenail.
11: <laughs>
12: yes, that's right. Well, Rochester, take the pen and start filling out the insurance form. Yes, sir. You can answer most of the questions yourself.
14: Okay. Full name, Jack Benny. Address, 360 North Camden Drive. Occupation, radio comedian. Age, 38.
12: <laughs> that's my boy who said that. <laughs>
14: Weight, 165 pounds. Height, 5 feet 10. Color of eyes, reflection of the evening Yes.
12: <laughs> Just put down blue. This is a business transaction. <laughs>
14: yes, sir. You better answer this next question, boss. Describe how accident occurred.
12: Mm, write this down. During the excitement of a football game, I was viciously tackled, thrown to the ground, and knocked unconscious.
14: Name the description of person causing injury to you.
12: Stephen Kent, nine years old.
11: <laughs> <laughs> Say,
14: boss, ain't that going to be sort of embarrassing?
12: Yes, you, you better make it 12 years old. <laughs> Nature of injury, severe sprain to the left ankle. and Rochester, see who's at the door. We'll finish this later. Yes. sir. Let's see. To Jack Benny from someone who admires you tremendously. Might be Hetty Lamar or Ann Sheridan, or Paulette, or Betty Grable, or... Gee, I better take off some of these blankets. It's getting kind of warm. It?
11: <laughs> <laughs>
12: it might even... Oh, hello, Don. Well, hello, Jack. Rochester told me to come right in. I came over just as soon as I heard about your accident. Well, I was nice of you, Don. And, Jack, I brought you this basket of fruit. Thought you might enjoy it. Gee, what a lovely-looking basket. Fruit, nuts, and everything. Look at those fruit there. Set it right over there on the table. Okay. Mind if I have an apple? No, 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 not at all. Well, how'd the accident happen, Jack? Oh, it's really silly. I was playing football with some kids and I tripped and fell. You know, Jack, I was quite a football player during my college days. You were, Jack? Yes, sir. Did you ever hear of the famous seven blocks of granite? Yes. Well, I was known as the seven barrels of blubber. <laughs> I'll just ad lib that to cheer you up a little
11: bit.
12: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thanks. You're welcome. Mind if I have a banana? No, no, no. Go right ahead. Well, seriously, Jack, I was pretty terrific as a football player. What'd you say, Don? I'll never forget my last college game back in 1927. With only one minute to go, I scored a touchdown on the hidden ball play by slipping the ball under my jersey. Well, Don, that was 20 years ago. You can take it out now. (laughs) By the way, Don, uh, how are things at the studio? How'd the rehearsal go? Oh, everything went fine, Jack. Good, good. Would it be all right if I have an orange? Oh, sure, sure, sure.
14: (laughs) Go right ahead.
12: Rochester, answer the phone, please. Yes, sir.
14: (coughs) Hello? Hello, Rochester. This is Professor LeBlanc, Monsieur Benny's violin teacher. Oh, yes. I just heard the good news No, no, Professor It's his ankle, not his arm <laughs> Sacré bien <laughs> Who,
11: uh,
12: Who was that on the phone, Rochester? Professor LeBlanc Oh Say, Jack, was that your violin teacher? Yes Mind if I have another banana? No, no, no Go right ahead You know, Jack I was just thinking Don, Don Wouldn't they taste better If you peeled them first?
11: <laughs> huh?
12: I don't know, I've never tried them that way Well, you should, you know, they're... Oh, hello, Dennis I was hoping you'd come over, I wanted to ask oh, you... Oh, hello, Mr. Benny Hello Say, Dennis, I was hoping you'd come over, I wanted to ask How you about... How do you feel? Pretty good Dennis, I was hoping you'd come over, I wanted to ask How's you... How's your ankle? Not bad, not bad Dennis, I was hoping... Hello, ho... Don Why, well, hello, Dennis
11: <laughs>
12: <laughs> Gee, these grapes are good Grapes? Don, when would you start the grapes? After
15: I finished the tangerine <laughs>
11: Tangerines?
15: How can a man... See, see, Don, come to the winner. I want to show you something. Look. Look what I bought this morning. See it there against the curb? Well, a bicycle built for two. Say, who's that sitting on the front seat? My chauffeur. <laughs> Your chauffeur? I got two shows, you know.
12: I know, I know. Say, Dennis, look at this. I brought it over to cheer up Mr. Benny. Gee, what a beautiful basket. Yeah, you should have seen it when there was fruit in it.
15: (laughs) (laughs) Say, Mr. Benny, I brought you something, too. Here. Oh, thanks,
12: kid. Thanks. But, uh, uh,
15: what is it? It's just a plain stick. Oh, it was a popsicle, but it melted on the way over. (laughs) Oh. And I had a gift wrap, too.
12: Well, anyway, Dennis, you meant well.
15: Oh, by the way, Don, I'd like you to drop by my house if you can. We have our Christmas tree up already, and I want you to see it.
12: Oh, sure, I'd love to, Dennis. How do I get to your house?
15: Well, drive over to Wilshire Boulevard and follow the pink line down the middle of the street. The pink line? That popsicle was raspberry. (laughs) Say, Mr. Benny, I've been rehearsing the song I'm going to sing on the program. Would you like to hear it?
12: What's the name of it? So far. Oh, sure, Dennis. Sure. Go ahead. Jack, do you mind if I have one of these walnuts? No, no, Don. Go ahead. I'm glad you didn't bring me candy. I'm on a diet. Go ahead and sing, kid. Will you? Okay.
16: We have nothing to remember so far. of a star So far Your heart Has never fluttered So near
12: wonderful song and it sounded great thanks mr benny don not so loud with those walnuts you know? it makes me nervous oh i'm sorry jack anyway you're liable to who's there somebody at the door
14: i'll get
15: it say mr benny how long do you think you'll have to stay in bed with your sprained ankle i don't know but i've got to be
12: up thursday because i'm going to be a guest on the dick Haynes show
15: dick Haynes? who's he
12: Who's he? Dick Hames is a great singer. That's who he is. How
15: many shows has he got?
12: (laughs) One.
11: Ha!
12: (laughs) Dennis, what are you ha-haing about? Everybody doesn't have to have it. Benny, right in here, sonny. Hello, Mister Benny. Oh, hello, Stevie. It's nice of you to drop in.
7: Gee, I'm sure sorry I tackled you so hard that you hurt your ankle.
12: Well, don't worry about it, Stevie. It's all in the game. Say, Stevie, this is Don Wilson and Dennis Day. Hi. Hello, Stevie.
7: Hello. Mr. Benny, the boys in our club were sorry you got hurt. So we chipped in and bought you this.
12: Oh, gee, my favorite magazine. True confession. (laughs) Thanks, Stevie. Say, uh, Stevie, I understand that you and the kids in the neighborhood have a pretty good football team.
7: Yeah, we have uniforms and everything.
15: How many footballs have you got? One.
11: Ha! <laughs>
12: Dennis, be quiet. You know, Jack, I think it's wonderful the way the kids in the neighborhood all get together and play football and everything. Not only that, Don, these kids have even formed a club. They pay dues, you know. They've already saved up eight dollars and sixty five cents. How do you know?
7: Mr. Benny's the treasurer. (laughs) Yes,
12: they wanted me to run for president, but I don't... See more visitors today. Rochester,
14: see who's at the door, will you please? Yes, sir.
7: Hello, Rochester. How's Mr. Benny?
14: Oh, he's getting along fine, Miss Livingston. You know, he's in a pretty good shape for a man of 38.
7: 38? Rochester, Mr. Benny is 53. Well, then how
14: come when he made out his income tax, he put down his age as 38?
7: The government lets him withhold
11: 20%.
7: <laughs>
14: Rochester, who is it?
7: It's me, Jack.
12: Well, Mary. Mary, it's sure good to see you. Hello,
7: Jack. How are you, Don? Hello, Mary. Hello, Dennis. Ha! <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's the first half of the jack benny program from december 14 1947 we'll have the conclusion in our next hour here on the wgn radio theater but first these words lisa i recently turned some of my fine jewelry that i wasn't wearing anymore into cold hard cash which i like you like, you like cash? You like cash? you know, I could take it early. I it. I really like cash. <laughs> you know, I had some uh some nice pieces. They were sitting in a safety deposit box collecting dust. And so I took them to my good friend Matt Burdine. I've known Matt for many, many years. He's a guy you can trust. He owns his own business called Burdine's Jewelers. And you can go to their website, Burdeens, B-U-R-D-E-E-N-S dot com, or you can call a toll-free number.
1: I will give you the number. Write it down. It is 800-875-4418. That's 800-875-4418. Or, of course, you can log on to Burdeens.com. Visit their website. That's B-U-R-D-E-E-N-S.com.
0: Yeah, so if you have some jewelry that you'd love to turn into uh, cold, hard cash, you know, fine jewelry that is just sitting in your drawer or safety deposit box, contact Matt Burdeen.
1: Of course, Matt Burdeen also sells beautiful new jewelry. And if you're in the market- Market for a special girl or guy, um, don't hesitate to check it out. They have some beautiful pieces. They really do, yeah. <laughs> and I know my birthday's around the corner. <laughs> so
0: Well, talk to your husband about that.
1: <laughs> I sure will. <laughs> What's the
0: toll-free number again? It
1: is 800-875-4418.
0: All right, we will have the conclusion to the Jack Benny program, plus Danger Dr. Danfield, Good Detective Adventure. That's all coming your way right after the news. Hour two of the WGN radio theater. I'm your host, Carl Amari. My co-host is Lisa Wolf. Our executive producer, Mike Estella, and we'll be here till three o'clock in the morning. In fact, we're here every Saturday night from 10 p.m. until three o'clock in the morning, bringing you the greatest classic radio shows of all time. I have over 100,000 classic radio shows licensed from the rights holders, and we broadcast these shows for you. And we also have them available at our Classic Radio Club. If you want to learn more about the Classic Radio Club, check out ClassicRadioClub.com. In this hour, too, we will have the conclusion to the Jack Benny program from 1947. Then we'll tune into a 1946 episode of Danger, Dr. Danfield. All that begins after these words. Welcome back to Hour 2 of the WGN Radio Theater. In our last hour, we began listening to the Jack Benny program from December 14, 1947. Jack sprained his ankle. All his gang is with him. Let's hear the conclusion now to the Jack Benny program.
11: What was that?
0: He thinks he's better than you are because you've only got
12: one head. (laughs) Oh, nothing,
7: nothing. How's your ankle?
12: Well, I can't walk on it yet. Say, Mary, did you bring me a present or
7: anything? Yes, Jack, I left it in the living room. Should I bring it in? What is it? A rubber duck. You broke yours last week.
12: (laughs) Oh, yes, well, it was nice of you to think of me. By the way, how are things in Palm Springs?
7: Oh, I had a wonderful time, Jack, and just before I left, I got this letter from Mama.
12: Oh, a letter from your mother, eh? Well, what does the Martha Graham of Plainfield have to say?
7: (laughs) I'll read it to you.
12: (coughs) Don, don't throw the shells in my bed.
7: <laughs> Go ahead, Mary. Read the letter. Okay. My darling daughter, Mary, I hate to start this letter with bad news. I thought your father was on the wagon, but last week he lost his job as Santa Claus in the local department store. It seems he breathed on a couple of kids and their hair turned gray. <laughs>
12: I knew he could do
11: it.
7: <laughs> However, I am happy to say that your sister, babe, is engaged again. This yeah. time to a very nice man. He's working at the Acme Iron Company as a steam fitter.
12: A steam fitter, huh?
7: Babe had to quit working as the foreman won't allow man and wife on the same job.
12: <laughs> yeah, that's a shame after she bought that new set of wrenches, too.
7: <laughs> <laughs> When Babe left the Acme Iron Company, they gave her a bonus, and she's using the money to have her teeth straightened.
12: Well, babe's teeth do protrude a little,
11: you know. <laughs> remember, <laughs>
7: remember the last time she almost got married? When the minister said, "Do you take this man to be your lawful wedded husband?" Babe smiled, said, "I do," and ripped her veil to shreds.
11: <laughs>
12: oh yes, I felt so sorry for those big holes in her veil. The flies got in.
7: <laughs> <laughs> they invited me to go with them to Niagara Falls on their honeymoon, but it was too expensive for 3 people. So Babe and I are going alone. <laughs>
12: Mary, it's none of my business, but why doesn't your mother stay home?
7: She has an answer to that. Oh. The reason I'm so anxious to go back to Niagara Falls is because it will bring back those wonderful memories of 1912. Just think, no other woman has gone over in a barrel since then.
12: (laughs) Not only that, your mother did it while the beer was still in it. (laughs)
7: No other news, so we'll close now. Your loving mother, Jersey Joe Livingston.
12: Jersey Joe Livingston. Your mother sure reaches for those gags.
7: Oh, wait a minute. Here's a P.S.
12: Oh, fine.
7: Uh, Your sister babe just came in crying her eyes out and said the wedding is off. What? Her boyfriend came over and handed her a note that said, We disaffiliate. No. It must be the real thing because it was written in coal dust. Gee,
12: that's a shame. One thing about your mother's letters, they're always so interesting Don, please (laughs) Say, Dennis Dennis, hand me that ashtray,
15: will you? Okay, but Don, put some walnut shells in it We'll empty it Okay
12: (laughs) (laughs) Say, Mary, do you think that... Don, why are there tears in your eyes? I caught my finger in the nutcracker (laughs) Good, good Gee, I sure wish I could get out of this bed. I'm so uncomfortable.
7: Well, Jack, you've been lying in the same spot all week. Why don't you turn around and put your head at the foot of the bed for a change?
12: That's a good idea. Help me turn around, will you? I'll help you, Jack. Thanks, John.
7: Oh, be careful of my foot.
12: Be careful of my sprained ankle. There. I'm all right now. Thanks, you're right, Mary. It is more comfortable with my head at this end of the bed. The doctor's here, Mr. Billy. The doctor sent him right in. How
14: do you do?
11: <laughs> now, I'm
14: Dr. Nelson. Somebody called me. I did. It's about Mr. Benny's sprained ankle. Oh, well, I'll examine that at once. Say, this does
2: look bad. Look how swollen it is. My, what an ugly-looking mess.
12: Doctor, you're looking at my head. My feet are at the other end.
11: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
9: eh, Yeah. Yes. That's your nose. I thought you had a high instep.
12: Well, how how does my ankle look, Doctor? I don't know yet. Pull up your nightie. (laughs) Okay.
7: I'll leave the room.
12: You don't have to, Mary. I'm wearing pajamas underneath. Now, Doctor, examine my ankle. Just a moment while I remove your sock. There. This little piggy went to market. This little piggy stayed home. This little piggy... Biggie... Doc, cut
11: that off! <laughs>
12: Just examine my ankle. Yes, sir. Hiya, Jackson. Hello, fellas. Hey. What you say, Libby?
7: Hello, Phil.
12: Hey, how do you feel, Jackson? How's the invalid? I'm all right.
7: Oh, Jack, look what Phil brought you.
12: What? Why, Phil, you sentimental son of a gun. Thanks for the flowers. These ain't for you. I thought you had a nurse.
11: Oh! <laughs> Well,
12: I'll be darned. Here I am laid up in bed, and he brings flowers for the nurse. Well, ain't you got one? No, if I did have a nurse, how would you know what she looked like? Look, Jackson, what have I got to lose? If the dame's pretty, I give her the flowers. If she's really homely, Don can eat them. (laughs) Well, you've certainly got that figured out. Hey, well, since you ain't got no nurse, Jackson, I think I'll give the flowers to Livy. Hey. Hey. Here you are, Livy. Well, thank you. Wait a minute, Mary. I want this room to look nice. Put the flowers in the vase.
7: Jack, Phil gave them to me and I'm gonna take them home. You are
12: not. I'm the one who's laid up, so give me those flowers.
7: Okay, okay, here.
12: After all, it's my house, you know, and I
7: OUT! Doctor, what did you do to my foot? I bit you, you mean old man! <laughs>
12: Keep out of this. It's none of your
11: business. (laughs)
12: Come on. Come on, everybody. Let's get the party started. Phil, put down that bottle. That's the rub on my back. (laughs) Huh? Can't you see what it says on the label? For external use only. You're supposed to rub it in your skin. Rub it in my skin? Yes. That sounds like a slow way, but with New Year's Eve three weeks off, maybe I can make it. (laughs) If you rub hard, yeah. Hey, yes. look, Jackson, I gotta run along. I gotta go down to the pool room, rehearse my own show. Well, you rehearse your show in the pool room? Sure, that way I can always pick up my cue. <laughs> Bill. Oh, Harris, you may not be the Bill. prettiest kid tonight, Mr. Stopper. Bill, on second thought, don't rub it in. Drink it.
2: <laughs> hey, thanks. So long, Jackson. So long. Hey, now, Mr. Benny, I've got your ankle all taped up, and I'd suggest that you get some rest. Some rest? Okay, doctor.
15: Goodbye, Mr. Benny. I'll see you later. Ha!
12: (laughs) So long, Dennis.
7: I'll run along, too, Jack.
12: Okay. I'm sorry I got so mad about the flowers.
7: Oh, that's all right.
12: Then give me a kiss to show me you're not mad.
7: Okay. Pucker up your lips. Mm Hmm? A little more. Mm
11: Hmm? A little more. Mm Hmm?
7: Now, here's your rubber duck. Blow it up. (laughs)
12: Well, it's my own fault for being such a mean old man. Gee,
2: my toe hurts. Well, I'll run along, too, Mr. Benny, and remember what I said. Get some sleep. I will, I will. Uh, would you like me to leave you a sleeping pill? No, no, I'll just tune in to Fred Allen.
12: <laughs> it's quicker that way. <laughs> goodbye, doctor. Hey, goodbye. Oh, Rochester! Rochester! Yes, sir! Look, I'm going to try to get a little sleep. I wish you'd... Read that book to me that might help. You know the one you the one you started yesterday.
14: Oh yes, let me see. Where is it?
12: Here it is right here.
14: Let's see, where were we? Oh yes. In this town there lived a farmer who was disliked by all of his neighbors because he was so greedy. And one day he walked out to the barn and found that his goose had laid a golden egg. Gee, the next day the farmer went out to the barn and found that his goose had laid another golden egg. God. And then the third day, another golden age Oh, boy On the fourth day, the goose Rochester,
12: riders... read something else I'll never go to sleep, that's too exciting
14: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
12: Fine, Find another story, will you?
14: Okay, here's one Once upon a time, in a great big forest There lived three bears A mama bear, a papa bear, and a little baby bear these three bears had a house in the woods. And in their house, there was three beds. A mama bed, a papa bed, and a little, little baby. Bed. <laughs> the baby bear said, someone's been eating my porridge and ate it all
12: up. Uh... Rochester, don't read anymore. I'll try to get... John! Are
2: you still here? Why don't you go home? I can't. I'm sick as a dog. This is NBC, the National Broadcasting
0: Company. And that's the Jack Benny program from December 14th, 1947. Jack and all his gang hope you enjoyed that. You know what, Lisa? We have never played a Danger Dr. Danfield radio show yet on the WGN Radio Theater. So why not do one now? Want to?
1: It's a big day. We're playing some (laughs) extra classic radio shows. We are. And what's exciting is his name is Dr. Dan Danfield. Yeah. I mean, it's very memorable.
0: Right? Better than Dr. Dan Dandruff.
1: Mm. I don't know about that no? you know yeah some people like Dandruff you never know really
0: yeah not me no no this I, was a I detective <laughs> <laughs> this was a detective series heard on ABC radio from 1946 through 1947 although it was heard into the 1950s via syndication Michael Dunn starred now he was uh, known on other radio shows as Steve Dunn in fact he played Sam Spade on CBS radio but on this program he goes by the name Michael Dunn. He had lots of aliases.
1: Mm. Hmm. Mm. You have to wonder about <laughs> yeah. that.
0: He played Dr. Dan Danfield, a criminal psychologist. Each episode began with his dictation of a case to his secretary, with dramatic sequences interspersed within the narration. Joanne Johnson was Danfield's sassy secretary, Rusty Fairfax. Her Butterfield played Captain Otis, and Jane Avello was Danfield's chauffeur. It was produced by Wally Ramsey for Telloway's Radio Productions and written by Ralph Wilkinson. All right. Uninterrupted now. Here's a broadcast from December 8th, 1946 called the $100,000 life insurance claim. Here's Michael Dunn in Danger, Dr. Danfield.
2: Danger, Dr. Danfield. (laughs) Our story opens in the small town of Benton, located north of New York City on the Hudson River. Two French-Canadian laborers are digging a ditch on the grounds of a prosperous-looking farm. Mon Dieu. Mon Dieu. Pierre. Hey, Pierre. Oui. What is it, mon ami? Come here. There's something I do not understand.
8: Hey, what is the matter, Jacques? You find Uh, some gold, maybe? uh, (laughs) Ah, Ah, mother of Mary.
2: I think perhaps we have found something we are not supposed to, huh,
8: Pierre? Oh, cross yourself, Jacques. Uh, It is the body of a man. Suck what is
2: left of a man. uh, Come, we should not disturb the grave of the dead. grave, you say? Do not be a fool, Pierre. Does one bury one's dead in a field behind a house with neither casket nor cross to mark the spot, huh? That I do not think. No? Then what is it you think, mon ami? I think that we will find this is the body of Monsieur Howard Holbrook, who has been reported missing these past months. Come, let us go to the police.
17: Well,
8: it sounds interesting, Mr. Fuller. Go on, please, will you? Well, there isn't a great deal more to tell, Doc. You see, as representative of the Great Eastern Insurance Company, it's my job to check every detail before I recommend to the home office that they pay Mrs. Holbrook the
18: $100,000. $100,000 is a lot of money. I don't blame you. Still, I don't see that you have any real reason to suspect that Howard Holbrook was murdered.
8: Well, I'm relying mainly on a hunch, Miss Fairfax, and the so far unexplained reason why Holbrook's body was found in a trench behind his former home. You're positive the body was that of Holbrook? Yes, yes. The corpse had, of course, disintegrated beyond recognition. But Mrs. Holbrook identified him by the fact that the third toe of his left foot was missing. Also, there was a watch inscribed with Holbrook's name.
18: Were you able to determine the cause of death?
8: No, there were no marks of violence at all. But still you think he was murdered, possibly by his wife, in order to collect the insurance. Well, we have definitely established that Holbrook's wife was spending most of the month of June with her sister in Fairfield.
18: But uh, Fairfield is only 50 miles from Benton. Couldn't she have driven back without her sister's knowing about it?
8: Well, from June 6th to June 13th, Mrs. Holbrook was sick in bed with a cold. Her sister and some friends have already testified to that fact. Well, that establishes her alibi rather completely, doesn't it?
18: Wait a minute. June 6th. That was a year ago. I thought Howard Holbrook was serving a jail sentence at that time.
8: No, you see, Miss Fairfax, he was given his freedom on June 5th. As you'll remember, Holbrook was sentenced on a charge of embezzlement from the bank of which he was president. Oh, yes, 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 it was quite a scandal. He'd been appropriating the bank's funds over a period of years. That's right. He had amassed a small fortune, but all of it was spent fighting the charges against him. So, when he was released from jail, he was broke? Yes. On June 5th, he was set free. On June 14th, he appeared at the home of a cousin in Chicago. And he told the cousin he lacked the courage to face his family or society. Mm -hmm. The next day, he disappeared and hadn't been heard from since.
18: It looks to me, Mr. Fuller, as though you'd have to pay Mrs. Holbrook the (laughs) $100,000.
8: Possibly you're right, Miss Fairfax. Oh, uh, before I make my offer, there's one other thing you must know. Oh, what's that? Well, between June 6th and June 13th, neighbors reported seeing a light in the Holbrook home. And some of the reports stated that a mysterious figure was seen moving about the grounds.
17: Mm -hmm. And uh, what's your answer to the stories, Mr. Fuller?
8: Just this, Doctor. When Holbrook was in jail, he made an enemy of a man named Guy Emerson. They quarreled frequently over small matters, even resorting to fisticuffs on one or two occasions. Emerson was released two days after Holbrook. And it's your opinion that this Guy
17: Emerson came directly to the Holbrook home, found Howard Holbrook waiting there for his wife to return from her sisters, and
8: uh, murdered him? No. No, it couldn't have happened that way. Remember, Dr. Holbrook was seen in Chicago on June 14th. Oh? As a matter of fact, Dr. Danfield, I don't believe he returned to his home at all.
17: Then what do you believe, Mr. Fuller?
8: I believe that Holbrook was murdered by his wife. I don't know how or when or where, and I've absolutely nothing to go on but a hunch. But my company, Danfield, is willing to gamble $10,000 to have me proven right. Now for the second act of... Danger, Dr. Danfield.
2: Dan? Oh, yes, Rusty?
18: What time does the plane get into Chicago?
2: Oh,
17: in about an hour, I think.
18: And you really believe that these cousins of Howard Holbrook can help us any?
17: I don't know, Rusty. I'm not yet convinced that it was actually Holbrook who called on them a year ago last June 14th.
18: What if it wasn't? Then you know what I think?
17: Mm Hmm? What's that, Rusty?
18: I think that you feel that this case is as hopeless as I do. You're just pretending there's a chance of proving that Elsie Holbrook murdered her husband because... Well, because...
17: Because of $10,000, Rusty? Oh, I don't mean
18: to imply that you take money under false pretenses, only...
17: (laughs) Rusty, you're wonderful. (laughs) Don't worry. If I fail to prove that Mrs. Holbrook murdered her husband, I'll... I'll not take Mr. Fuller's (laughs) $10,000.
2: I'm sorry you came way out here to Chicago, Dr. Danfield. There's not the least doubt that the man who called on me a year ago last June 14th was my cousin Howard Holbrook.
17: Thank you very much. You've helped a lot.
18: Well, Dr. Danfield, now are you convinced that it was Howard Holbrook who called on his cousin Charles in Chicago?
17: Yes, yes I am, Rusty. Charles Holbrook struck me as the type of man who wouldn't lie. I can't see that it would avail him anything if he did.
18: But you're still convinced you can build up a case against Mrs. Holbrook?
17: Don't be so pessimistic, Rusty. There's an answer to this problem somewhere, and we're going to find it. What
18: problem? I don't see that there's any problem. A man is found dead. His wife identifies him. There's no indication that he was murdered.
17: There was no indication that he wasn't murdered either, Rusty. And if he wasn't, how did he die? And who buried him in a ditch behind his own house?
18: Guy Emerson, his prison mate. Oh, why, it's as plain as the nose on your face.
17: Oh? I thought you didn't believe that story about a mysterious figure being seen about the Holbrook place a year ago last June.
18: (laughs) All right, all right. So I made a mistake. So now I've changed my mind. If Howard Holbrook was murdered, the murderer had to be Guy Emerson. I think we'd do much better if we tried to run down this Emerson person instead of chasing all over the country trying to prove that Howard Holbrook wasn't Howard Holbrook.
17: Oh, do you, Rusty? I disagree. I think we're going to find the answer to our problem at Holbrook's home in Benton. And that's where we're going right now. (laughs)
19: Really, Dr. Danfield, your purpose in coming here is too obvious.
17: Well, I'm sorry you feel that way, Mrs. Holbrook. Just what do you think my purpose is?
19: Oh, come, let's not try to fool each other. Didn't Mr. Fuller of the Great Eastern Insurance Company offer you a sum of money to prove that it was I who murdered my husband?
17: Do you believe your husband was murdered, Mrs. Holbrook?
19: I don't know. There are no indications that he was. You haven't answered my question.
17: Oh, well... Mr. Fuller did offer me some money to work on the case, that's true.
19: Then aren't you being presumptuous to think that I would help you prove myself a murderess?
17: I don't intend to prove you're a murderess, Mrs. Holbrook. In fact, I intend to prove just the opposite. But
18: Mr. Fuller
19: believes... Yes, I know
17: that. Mr. Fuller believes you're guilty. I don't. Now, will you cooperate?
18: I don't know what to say. I think what Mrs. Holbrook wants to say is that she doesn't believe you, Dan.
19: No, it isn't that. I.
18: Oh, I don't know. Everything
19: seems so strange and unreal... People have been coming to the house ever since poor Howard's body was found. They all act suspicious. They all look at me and go away without offering any explanation.
17: Terrible. Believe me, I know how you feel, Mrs. Holbrook. Suppose you look at it this way. You didn't murder your husband, so therefore you have not a thing to lose by offering me your help.
18: As a matter of fact, you have everything to gain. I, I suppose you're right.
17: What is it you want me to do? Well, I'd like to ask you a few questions, and then I'd like permission to remain here at your home for a few days.
19: Very well. You'll have to shift for yourself, however. I've had no servant for over a year. Everything's run down. I've only been able to survive because there was a lot of valuable machinery and livestock that I could sell. Yes, yes,
17: I understand. Uh, Howard Holbrook's plan was to build himself a model farm up here, wasn't it?
19: Yes, we'd only lived here one summer, you know. Howard invested most of our savings. We had great plans for the future, and then...
17: Yes, yes. Mrs. Holbrook, are you sure in your own mind that the body that was found by the laborers was that of your husband?
19: Oh, yes, I'm positive. Why do people keep asking me that question?
17: Because if you weren't sure, Mrs. Holbrook, the insurance company would save themselves $100,000. Now, now about this ditch that the laborers were digging, what was to be its purpose?
19: Well, there's an orchard behind the garage. Howard had had it set out. A neighbor told me that if I kept the trees alive, the value of my property would be much increased.
17: I see. So you decided to pipe water into the orchard? Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, One more question, Mrs. Holbrook, and then, with your permission, we'll browse around the place.
19: Certainly. What is the question?
17: Do you believe that this man, Guy Emerson, who knew your husband in jail, is his murderer?
19: I'm not sure. How can I be? There's no indication that Howard was murdered. However, it seems to me that the least the insurance company could do is to find this Emerson person and question him.
17: The police are endeavoring to do that right now. Well, thank you, Mrs. Holbrook. Uh, Come along, Rusty. Let's see if we can't dig up a clue or two that our employer is overlooked.
18: Dan, when you told Mrs. Holbrook that you didn't believe she murdered her husband,
17: did you mean it? I've already told you I meant it, Rusty. Now stop asking me. I don't want to change my mind. Yeah. This must be the ditch.
18: Oh, let's skip the ditch. It's almost dark. We can't see anything tonight. Besides, I have some questions I want to ask you.
17: Let's see now. There's those dark silhouettes over there it must be the apple orchard. Well, that means, of course, that the pipeline should run right. Well. Now what? I'm well, no surveyor, Rusty, but it seems to me that if Mrs. Holbrook wanted to run water from the house to her orchard, she's spending a lot of money unnecessarily. Why? Why? Because if those laborers kept going in the same direction as they started, they'd wind up at a point between the house and the garage.
18: Oh, Dan, stop grabbing at straws. There could be a dozen reasons why the ditch is heading in that direction.
17: Oh, name three.
18: Mm, laborers might have struck a ledge. They might have intended to splice into the pipeline that must run from the house to the garage. Or they might have intended to splice it at the garage instead of the house.
17: Yeah, perhaps you're right. <laughs> Were any of your ancestors plumbers, Rusty? Oh, no, damn. Say, it's uh, getting dark, isn't
18: it? I'll say it is. And I'm tired. Oh, good gosh, what's that?
17: No, don't get alarmed. It's only a screech owl? An
18: owl? Let's go back. I hate owls. They're like bats.
17: They're not at all like bats, Rusty. All right, come on, let's go. There isn't much more we can do until daylight anyhow.
18: Oh! I'm beginning to think there isn't much we can do even in daylight. Dan, I I wish we weren't going to stay here tonight.
17: Why, are you afraid Mrs. Holbrook will murder you in your sleep?
18: I'm afraid I won't even sleep. Oh, here's the garage.
17: Yes, yes. I imagine those outside stairs lead up to the servants' quarters. Well, Rusty, come on. Hey, what the you look out. Oh, Damn, someone... Now back to our star, Michael Dunn, for the third act of Danger, Dr. Dan. Rusty. Rusty, you all right?
18: Oh, I I guess so. What happened?
17: I don't know. Someone attacked us. Here, let me get up my handkerchief. Your face is bleeding.
18: I didn't see anyone, and I didn't hear anyone either. Hello? Is that you, Dr. Danfield? Is something wrong?
17: Over this way, Mrs. Holbrook. Bring the light, will you please? How's it now, Rusty?
18: Oh, I am all right. More scared than anything, I guess. Dan, what
17: was it? What was what? Oh, here's Mrs. Holbrook. Over here, Mrs. Holbrook.
18: Oh, what is it? What happened? I heard the girl scream.
17: Oh, it's nothing serious, Mrs. Holbrook. Someone attacked us. Uh, hold the lantern up a little bit, will you please?
18: Oh, my, she's bleeding. I'll call the doctor. Uh, it's only a scratch. No, no, I don't need a doctor. Dan, did you see the person who attacked
17: us? No, no, he got away too fast. Here, let me wipe off
18: Are you face. sure it was a he?
17: Am I sure it was a... What do you mean by that?
18: Well, oh, she's upset and frightened. Come back to the
19: house, both of you. If you won't let me call a doctor, I can at least bathe that scratch on your face. Well,
17: that's an excellent idea, Mrs. Holbrook. Come along, Rusty. But,
18: Dan, you, you don't seem to
19: understand. I understand
17: perfectly, Rusty. Come along. And yeah, this is your room here, Rusty.
18: Oh, Dan, I wish I didn't have to go to bed. I'm scared. Can't we sit up all night?
17: Sit up all night? <laughs> that isn't going to help matters any, Rusty. There's nothing to be frightened of. Well,
18: there is. I don't know what, but there's something terribly wrong in this house. Dan, why do you suppose Mrs. Holbrook left us alone so long in the kitchen when she went for the antiseptic?
17: I think she went to telephone.
18: Oh, there's that awful owl. Hmm. Telephone? To whom? I don't
17: know, but I plan to find out in the morning.
18: How? Was she telephoning to someone about us? I
17: wouldn't be surprised, Rusty. However... Dan, that was a shot. Yes. Come on, there's a window at the end of the corridor.
18: It, it sounded as though it came from the garage.
17: Look there. Someone's running across the fields.
18: Oh, he's carrying a rifle. That bright moonlight, it's easy to see. Yes. Dan, what's that in his other hand? I don't
17: know. I think he's gone now. I wonder if...
18: Dan, what does it mean? Oh, I wish we'd never come here. On
17: the contrary, Rusty. I'm very glad we did come here. Let me see now. Yes. Yes, by George, that must be it. What must be what? Rusty, I think I'm beginning to see the answer to all this mystery. Yes, I'm sure I am. Well,
18: what is it? For goodness sake, tell me.
17: Yes, yes, it all adds up now. As soon as I check a few more facts. Come along, Rusty. We're going to get a good night's sleep, and then I think we can clean this case up.
18: I don't suppose it matters that it's only the crack of dawn. I didn't sleep anyway. The least we could have done is waited for breakfast. Oh,
17: it's inconsiderate of you, Rusty, waking Mrs. Holbrook at this hour of the morning to get us breakfast? (laughs) Besides, we have more important things to attend to. Yeah, here's the barn. Let's go in.
18: What do you expect to find in the barn?
17: Well, less we find, my dear, the more airtight our case will become. Well, it seems to be empty, doesn't it?
18: Mm, Except for a few broken-down farm implements.
17: Mm. Well, for heaven's sake, what's that?
18: Hmm, Looks like a butterfly net. (laughs) Maybe Howard Holbrook indulged in bug-chasing as a sideline. I
17: doubt it. That net is big enough to catch a whale. Well, I, I guess we've checked everything that's worth checking here. Now what do we do? Now, Rusty, we go out and see how many acres of land Howard Holbrook planned to have under cultivation. That's very important.
18: Okay, so Holbrook could have had 50 acres under cultivation, mostly in apple orchards and potatoes.
17: Now where are we? Well, we're a lot closer to the solution of this mystery than we were a half an hour ago, Rusty. Oh, who's this?
18: Looks like the farmer from next door. And look at that ugly scar running from the corner of his eye. Yes. Hello
17: there. Looking for something? Oh, nothing in particular. We're uh, staying here at the Holbrook Farm for a couple of days. Oh, and my name's Dunstan, Jason Dunstan. I live next door. Well, glad to know you, Mister Dunstan. I'm Doctor Daniel Danfield, and this is my secretary,
2: Rusty Fairfax. Well, the crime psychologist, eh? Still trying to find out if Holbrook was murdered, Doc? Do you think he was murdered, Mr. Dunstan? I'm sure he didn't crawl in that ditch himself and pull the dirt over him. <laughs> yes, you're quite right. Oh, uh, by the way, did you hear a shot last night? A shot? No. Where'd it come from?
18: From uh, somewhere near Mrs. Holbrook's garage.
2: Oh. Well, I wouldn't be able to hear it anyhow. My place is a half a mile away. Uh, who was shooting at what? Well, we don't know. Tell me, did you know the Holbrooks very well, Mr. Dunstan? Oh, I didn't know Holbrook at all. I didn't uh, buy my place until about, oh, four months ago. Mrs. Holbrook and I have become pretty well acquainted, though, since then. I bought some of the stuff she sold off. uh uh-huh. Did she have much to sell? Oh, plenty. Holbrook really went to town when he stopped the place. Oh, the widow would get along, even though she doesn't collect her insurance, though.
18: Dan, look, someone's driving into Mrs. Holbrook's yard.
2: Oh, yes, yes, probably a tradesman. Oh,
17: by the way, Mr. Dunstan, is there a public library in the village?
2: Public library? Yes. (laughs) That's a funny question. Yes, I suppose there is, although I never happened to see one.
17: Uh,
18: There's a set of encyclopedias in Mrs. Holbrook's living room, Dan, if you want to look up information. Oh, is
2: there, Rusty? That's
17: fine. That was nice meeting you, Mr. Dunstan. Possibly we'll see each other again. Yes. Come along, Rusty.
2: Uh, You bet, Doc, and if there's anything I can do to help you, uh, just let me know.
18: I hope I didn't embarrass Mr. Dunstan by staring at that scar on his face.
17: Yes. Yes. Well, it all adds up, doesn't it, Rusty?
18: What adds up? Oh, say, Dan, that man coming across the fields is Mr. Fuller, the insurance investigator. Yes,
8: so it is. Hello there, Mr. Fuller. Hello, Doc. Miss Fairfax. I thought I'd drop by and see how things were going. Well,
18: you made it bright and early, all right. It's only six (laughs) o'clock.
8: Well, I'm not used to this country air, Miss Fairfax. I stayed at the hotel in the village last night and hardly closed my eyes. Oh, uh, made any headway, Doc? Oh, yes. We've got your mystery cleared up for you, Mr. Fuller. It wasn't too difficult. What? Why, this is incredible. You mean that you actually know who murdered Howard Holbrook? No, but I know that my earlier conviction was right. Holbrook wasn't murdered. Wasn't murdered? That doesn't make sense. Why not?
18: A man can die at least two ways besides being murdered—naturally or accidentally.
8: I know, but being buried in that come into the so library
17: what? with us, Mister Fuller, and I'll show you the final answer in the Encyclopedia National. <laughs> Let's see now. M-A to N-E. N-E to P-E. Yes, yes, here we are.
18: I wonder where Uh, Mrs. Holbrook is. She ought to be getting up by now.
8: Oh, I'm much more interested in what Danfield expects to find in that encyclopedia than I am in... Oh, so. Yes, here we are. Owls. Owls?
18: What does it say, Dan?
17: Just what I expected it to say, Rusty. Listen. A mother owl will become vicious to a point of insanity if she thinks her offspring are in danger. At such times, they fear nothing will attack any foe, regardless of size. Their claws are like steel. Have an advantage because they are entirely soundless in flight.
18: Then, then it was an owl that attacked us last night. We didn't see anything or hear anything. That's
17: right, Rusty. It was an owl that's responsible for the scar on Jason Dunstan's forehead.
18: On Jason Dunstan's forehead.
8: Yes, it was an unusually deep scar, made about a year ago. Wouldn't you think?
18: Yes, but wait I a had. minute,
8: Doc. How does this business about the owls and scars on foreheads tie in with the murder of Howard Holbrook? It's rather an elaborate plan for murder, Mr. Fuller, and most cleverly executed. I'll be glad to explain.
17: Oh, oh, come in, Mr. Dunstan. I rather expected you. Where's your partner in crime, Mrs. Holbrook?
19: Right here. Oh. You're clever, Danfield, but you're also a fool. Dan, they've both got guns.
17: Naturally, they both have guns. Two people who are about to be proven guilty of murder would be expected to
2: carry guns. Well, you're a coon, Danfield. What a pity that you went to all this trouble for nothing. Oh, I didn't do it for nothing. I did it for $10,000. $10,000, eh? Fuller, you must have been pretty sure of yourself to gamble that amount. I was, but I still don't... Of course you don't. You're not smart like Danfield. Go on, Doc. Give the guy his money's worth. Tell him how you worked it out.
17: I'll be glad to. When Howard Holbrook was in jail, his wife got the idea about the owls. She visited her husband and told him her plan. The day before Holbrook's liberation, she left for her sisters to establish her alibi. When Holbrook got home, the place was deserted. Using a net which we found in the barn, he captured the mother owl.
18: So that's why the net interested you so much.
17: Yes, Rusty. Mr. Holbrook then dipped the steel-like claws of the owl in a powerful poison called curare. Poison? Then that's
8: why Holbrook's body showed no signs of violence. You're almost right, Mr. Fuller, but
17: not quite. After poisoning the owl's claws, Holbrook released the bird and sat back to wait. Yes? For what? You know for what, Mr. Dunstan. For the arrival of his convict friend, Guy Emerson.
18: Well, then it was Guy Emerson who murdered Holbrook.
17: Oh, no, Rusty, it wasn't Guy Emerson who murdered Holbrook. In fact, it wasn't Holbrook who was murdered. It was Emerson. What?
18: Well, then the the corpse that was found wasn't that of Howard Holbrook at all.
17: That's right. The corpse was that of Guy Emerson. As a matter of fact, this gentleman here who is pointing the gun at me and who calls himself Jason Dunstan... Is actually Howard Holbrook. Oh, Mr. Fuller, did you tell your men to surround the place? What? Surround? I- good, good. Rusty, step away from the window so the policeman can shoot. you. No, it is a trick.
11: Is it? Well, well, right on, woman, well, Fuller. All right, Holbrook. You better shoot now while you got a chance. <laughs> <laughs>
17: Now back to Michael Dunn for the conclusion of Danger, Dr. Danfield. Oh, come in, Mr. Fuller. Mr. Fairfax and I were just about to leave. Is is everything taken care of?
8: Yes, the local police department took them both away. Oh, uh, by the way,
17: Doc, before you leave, I'd like to hear the end of the story. Well, there isn't a great deal more to tell. Holbrook obviously inveigled Guy Emerson to a spot near where the owl had its nest. The owl attacked gouged Emerson about the face, and the poison took effect, killing him. Then what? Well, then Holbrook transferred his watch to Emerson's pocket and severed the third toe of his left foot. Afterward, he buried him out behind the garage.
18: And then Holbrook went to Chicago, called on his cousins, and announced he couldn't face society and was going to disappear.
17: Yes, yes, that's, the, that's right, Rusty. He stayed out of sight for a while and then returned to this town and bought the adjoining farm. No one recognized him because few people had ever seen him in this neighborhood and because his face was disfigured by the scar.
18: Well, I guess that explains everything. Uh, what got you to thinking along those lines, Dan? Uh, a great many
17: things, Rusty. But chiefly, it was the ditch going in the wrong direction, the net in the barn, and the scar on Holbrook's face. The scar? Of course. But not unlike the one on your face, Rusty. Only his was deeper. Then I remembered that after we heard the shot last night, we no longer heard the hoot of the owl.
18: Holbrook shot the owl?
17: Yes. When Mrs. Holbrook knew we'd been attacked, she called her husband and told him to shoot the owl just in case we got suspicious.
18: Oh, and then when you saw the scar on Holbrook's face... You reason that he must have been attacked by the owl when he captured it through Dibbit's claws and poison.
17: Rusty, you're a hundred percent right. You're always right. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do without you. As a matter of fact, I don't intend to do without you. <laughs> now, come on, Rusty. We've got ten thousand dollars to spend. Let's go. Uh-huh.
20: Detectives. There are many ways of inviting death, and being shot from a cannon is one of the surest. That is the situation on this page from my casebook the casebook of Jerry Browning, private detective. Take it from me, Jerry Browning, private detective. Murder is one performance that doesn't bear repeating. <laughs> i just put my money down at the ticket window at Colton's Colossal Circus, and a voice behind me said, Hold it! That man's money is counterfeit! I spun around and faced Phil Ganey, whom I hadn't seen since college days. Phil grinned. Your money's counterfeit at this box office, Jerry. Pass it. I grinned, too. What's your job here, Phil? Boss supervisor? A house detective to the circus, you might call it. A tall, thin-lipped character sauntered past waved at Phil, who grabbed him. Hey, Wendy! Want you to meet an old school pal, Jerry Browning. Wendy's our 24-hour man, Jerry. Travels a day in advance of the show, gets the lot, buys the provisions, puts us into business. Wendy smiled acidly. The chief makes it sound like a big job, Mr. Browning, but it isn't. Well, have fun. Inside the big top, the show moved smoothly and swiftly to its big climax, the canon act of Challenge Colton, who was both the circus owner and top built performer. Challenge Colton will now defy death by being shot from a cannon higher and further than any human being has ever dared attempt. Dressed in a crash driver's suit and helmet, Colton came striding out, climbed into the cannon's muzzle. Several moments later Colton's body arced through the air and landed heavily in the net but he didn't rise for his bow or clamber out Two clowns jumped into the net picked up Colton pulled him out walked him off with exaggerated staggering and stumbling They didn't fool me Those clowns were carrying a dead man The performer owner of a circus was shot from a cannon and landed dead Phil Ganey, the circus detective, had left right after the act. A couple of minutes later, he came back. Is Colton gone? Phil nodded tightly. Yeah. We're cutting the show short, closing right after these joeys get through. The joeys are circus clowns named after Joe Grimaldi, the most famous clown of them all. There were two joeys in the main ring now. The same pair who'd carried Colton out of the net. One of them was a huge man wearing an inflated chest and enormous rubber shoulder muscles. The other was a tiny man. The big man pushed the little man around, abused him, and finally the little man took a huge revolver from his pocket and shot the big man. The big man's fake chest collapsed and he sank to the ground. Then the little man grabbed the bully by the legs and dragged him off. This time, even Phil couldn't keep me in my seat. Phil, come on, you've got another dead man on your hands. We pushed our way outside. The circus doctor was bending over the body of the clown, still dressed in his bully's costume. There's uh, nothing I can do. This man was shot to death. Phil grabbed the little clown. You always were jealous of Eric. You'll get the chair for this. The little man was too shocked to answer, but I had some ideas on the subject. Look, Phil, I'm a detective, too, and I've got a hunch that this death may be mixed up with Colton's death on the Cannon Act. <laughs> An hour later, most of the top circus people were at police headquarters. Toby, the little clown charged with murder, was in a cell. Phil Ganey, Windy, the advance man, and the circus treasurer were arguing with the police commissioner for permission to take the circus out of town the following evening. There's been two murders, and I'm not satisfied with the accounts of how Colton died in that cannon. I'm sorry for you people, but you'll have to stay in town for the time being. After the commissioner walked out, I looked at the three circus men. Is this... Going to hurt you people? Phil smiled wryly. It'll well, just about put us out of business, Jerry. The circus has a big payroll. It can't sit idle very long. Wendy, the advance man, got up. Well, it's sure been nice knowing you folks. I'm going on ahead. Phone me when we get permission to move. I turned to Phil. Where's he going? Up ahead to the next town. The circus can't get there as scheduled. Wendy will have a lot of changes to make. Food orders to cancel or postpone I don't envy him. I stared at the door. I don't either. Especially when the commissioner finds out that Wendy didn't consider himself included in that don't leave town order. <coughs> a circus lot settled down for the night. with a place of strange shadows and weird sounds. Silent figures flitting around tent ropes. Animals coughing and stirring in their cages. Bill Ganey pointed out the huge, shrouded bulk of the cannon from which Colton had been flung to his death. Most of the gadgets are propped, Jerry. It's just a big spring that propels him out. The flash of fire and the explosion take place outside. Yeah. But the coroner says he was asphyxiated, smothered to death. How do you account for that? Bill shrugged. I don't know. Maybe gases leaked back into the cannon from the flash powder. Maybe. And maybe a real bullet leaked into the gun that little clown fired. But I don't believe that either. Back at police headquarters, I had a talk with Toby, the clown who'd been charged with murder. Yeah, Mr. Browning. When Eric and I pulled Mr. Colton out of the net, his hands and face was ice cold. I remember Eric saying Mr. Colton was froze to death, like... All right, Toby. That's all I wanted to know. <laughs> A police patrol picked up Windy on the highway. They put him under arrest, brought him back on the technical charge of being a fugitive material witness. But when I faced him, Windy, you bought a quantity of dry ice this morning, and none of it was used on the circus grounds. What happened to it? I, uh, decided it was dangerous stuff. Threw it in a quick. It's dangerous, all right. But you put it in the cannon so that the carbon dioxide fumes would asphyxiate Colton. Yeah. He finally broke down. As advanced man, he'd handled circus funds, mishandled them mostly, and was on the verge of being exposed unless he managed to kill off Colton. He might have got away with the crime, but he tried to play it too safe by killing one of the clowns who'd noticed how unnaturally icy Colton's body had been and by having the other clown charged with murder. And that was just too pat. Like I said, murder is nothing to clown about because the law always manages to have the last laugh. This is WGN, Chicago
0: 11. That's Danger, Dr. Danfield from December 8th, 1946, with a $100,000 life insurance claim starring Michael Dunn.
1: You know, you can see a fun fact about Michael Dunn and Danger, Dr. Danfield, on our Facebook page with a photo of him. Check it out at WGN Radio Theater on Facebook.
0: Yes, indeed. All right, let's take a quick break. Then it's more on the WGN Radio Theater.